All right, good morning. How is everyone? Have you tried the Dunkin' Donuts coffee yet? How many of you have had the Dunkin' Donuts coffee? Raise your hand. How many of you know what I'm talking about at all? Dunkin' Donuts is, uh, I don't know how they can be famous since there's none here in Hanford, but they're they're, they're a a famous donut chain all over the world and uh, mostly in the eastern United States. But uh, when we were in Honduras, I think there's Dunkin' Donuts every 10 feet. Uh, They are the Starbucks of Honduras. But uh, anyway... um, that you can buy their coffee now at uh, some locations, and, and we, we grabbed some at Target the other day. Somebody else told me that Walmart had it. Uh, for those of you who are boycotting Walmart, you can go to Target. Uh, if you're boycotting Target, you can go to Walmart. But uh, anyway, uh, man, is it strong coffee. It's strong coffee. I'm not saying I had any, but it's strong coffee. So forget about the hazelnut and the French vanilla. I mean, add your own flavor. Just get the raw, you know, regular Dunkin' Donuts coffee and stuff. So go for it. All right. So I felt like I had to tell you that. I was also sad yesterday. You know, Quiznos has changed their menu quite a bit. I haven't been in there for a while. They changed their menu. It's probably because I quit going, uh, but uh, they don't have the rosemary Parmesan bread anymore. What's to live for? They have these little Sammies that are really good, the little, but you have to eat three of them to be full. Uh, but uh, the, yeah, I go and I get my, tu- I said like the Tuscan turkey uh, without tomatoes. It's my standard. And she goes, what kind of bread? And I go, well, the rosemary Parmesan that it comes with. Well, we don't do that anymore. It's tad. Anyway, well, luckily I drank some Dunkin' Donuts coffee and I was ready. All right, let's open our Bibles. Enough of that. Uh, Get into Acts chapter 19. Our text is Acts 19, verses 8 through 20. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 20. The topic, we'll see, God breaks the Ephesians of their superstitions after the seven sons of Sceva fail miserably to exorcise a demon. The title of our message, An Exorcise in Futility. Ooh, ah, Sound like those, uh, those little guys in Toy Story. What are they called? Remember the little, the, ooh, ah. Buzz Lightyear, Toy Story. It was a movie a few years ago. I think John Wayne was in it. But anyway, <laughs> Acts 19, verse 8, and he went, Paul, into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Many who had believed 
came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Let's pray. Father, be our guide through this uh, section of Scripture. It's uh, exciting, but it's also very unusual. It, it has some things in it, Lord, that, that challenge us. And I pray that you would make sense of it uh, in the context of your word and in the context of our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I found a fake miracles and trinkets webpage. Scrolling down, I read about the following items. There were more than these, but these were my favorites. The faith nail. It was a nail similar in style to the ones that were used to nail Jesus to the cross. You were instructed to write out your needs on a prayer list and then pierce it with the nail. Afterwards, and I quote, place your best sacrificial gift in the enclosed envelope and send the offering and your prayer requests in the return envelope. Then there was the paper prayer rug. It was a 16-inch by 20-inch picture of Jesus you unfolded and spread over your knees while you were kneeling to pray. Then you placed it folded in your Bible overnight. In the morning, you were to return it again with a generous financial offering. In addition to these, there were many prayer cloths offered uh, over the years. All had similar instructions about sending in your money. Now, we chuckle at these, but wait a minute. Before we discount these as frauds, doesn't God heal in Ephesus using the handkerchiefs and aprons of the Apostle Paul? Well, he did, and we must therefore give an answer for why he did. The answer is really not so hard to find. It has to do with the spiritual atmosphere of the city of Ephesus. It was a hotbed of occult beliefs and practices. We would say that the people were superstitious to a very great degree. God chose an unusual strategy to deconstruct their ideas about the spiritual world. It revealed to the Ephesians that the power of the Word of God and the presence of the Spirit of God are more than sufficient in every situation. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, limit yourself to the inherent power of God's Word. And number two, submit yourself to the indwelling presence of God's Spirit. First of all, let's look in verses 8 through 12 and talk about how we're to limit ourselves to the inherent power of God's Word. The Ephesians were fascinated with the occult. They practiced magic. They spent a small fortune on occult books, and they were a welcome stopover for itinerant exorcists. I'm going to suggest to you that God therefore employed a unique strategy to break them of their superstitions and reach them with the message of Jesus Christ. First, let's set the stage in verse 8. And he, and the he is the Apostle Paul, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul is on his third missionary journey. He's in the city of Ephesus. He had reconnected with Aquila and Priscilla, whom he had previously left behind in Ephesus. He supported himself working with them in their trade as tent makers, workers with leather. Three months was quite a long time for him to be welcome in a synagogue. He preached the gospel from the theme of the kingdom of God. Undoubtedly, he would review the Old Testament promises of a literal kingdom on earth with Jerusalem as its capital. 
And then he would proceed to show how that Jesus came offering that kingdom to the Jews, but they rejected him as their king. The kingdom was therefore postponed until the second coming of Jesus when he will return and establish it. In the meantime, the Lord was calling out people into his church. And so Paul was preaching the gospel with this theme of the kingdom of God. Verse 9, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Hardened indicates a willful and deliberate refusal to believe. Worse yet, they blasphemed the message of the gospel. Here it's called the way. This is one of the early names of the Christian message. It's called the way because Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the people understood that when Paul preached the gospel, he was saying, this is the way, there is no other. And so Paul and the disciples he had made started meeting daily in the school of Tyrannus. It seems that it was a private lecture hall. Tyrannus was believed to either be a rabbi or a philosopher who was teaching what we would call graduate students. And verse 10, it says, this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, like many cultures, especially those before or without air conditioning, every day featured a siesta, and I'm thumbs up to that. Uh, If I was running for president, my sole platform would be to reinstitute the siesta. Uh, and, and just give everybody some time off in the day. Not lunch. I mean, I'm going to lunch. Well, you got 45 minutes maybe, 30 minutes. I mean, let's have a siesta. Scholars believe the, that Paul used the lecture hall when it was vacant during a siesta from 11 a.m. until 2 p.m. That's what I call a break. And this he did daily for two years. Now, picture this. Paul is working uh, hard in the morning, uh, you know, as a tent maker, this is hard manual labor in this climate, in this atmosphere. And then while other people are having their siesta, he treks on down to the hall of Tyrannus and he labors hard in the word of God. Those of you who've taught the Bible or anybody who's done public speaking or teaching of any kind, you know, it's a labor. It's, it's labor intensive. It takes a lot out of you. And then after siesta was over, he'd trek back to the leather shop and uh, punch out some more uh, tents and, and, and curtains and things like that. And so he was working very hard, very dedicated. And his disciples very dedicated. I mean, the, the students of Tyrannus, they were like, uh, hey, buddy, it's 11 a.m. We're going on our siesta. I mean, this is interesting, but it's not interesting enough for us to miss siesta and sweat, uh, you know. And so, but Paul and his students, every day, for two years doing this, faithful, dedicated uh, teacher and his disciples. Now, as a result of this faithful, systematic Bible teaching, uh, the word spread to all the regions of Asia. We would call it Asia Minor or Turkey. It was during this time that the church at Colossae was founded and the seven churches of the book of the Revelation. 
Those are the churches that were established during this ministry of Paul's in Ephesus, teaching every day and people coming and going and going out and establishing churches. Something else was going on, and it's reported in verses 11 and 12. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Miracles are being performed by the hands of Paul. People were being healed, and they were being delivered from demons. Nothing new there. What startles us is the intermediate use of handkerchiefs and aprons to heal the sick. By handkerchiefs is meant sweatbands. These would be the sweatbands that Paul wore around his forehead or on his wrists while he was working with the uh, material to make tents. Likewise, the aprons were ones he wore as a workman to wipe the grime off his hands. You guys know what I'm talking about, and gals. I mean, that's what an apron is for. And so Paul, he's got these sweatbands going, and he's working hard, and he's sweating. And, and then as he's touching different materials, he's taking his apron, and he's wiping his greasy, grimy hands on those. Uh, and somehow... Uh, I don't know how this started, but somebody got a hold of a sweatband of the Apostle Paul's or one of his aprons. Uh, probably they dug it out of the trash can, you know, if they had, I don't know, I guess, I don't know. Did they have trash cans back then? They, missed, they did something with their garbage. They, maybe they stole it out of his laundry. I don't know. You know, he's down at the laundromat and they grab his sweatband because they were a superstitious people. They were into these kinds of things. Later in this chapter, we'll see that an an entire industry is destroyed because of the gospel because they're no longer buying little silver statues of the goddess. And so they had magic and trinkets and talismans and all of these things. And so they grab this, and God blesses that and allows them to be healed by these sweatbands and aprons. So what do we make of this? Does it open the door for the faith nail the paper prayer rug, and special prayer cloths. Well, no, quite the opposite. The Ephesians were steeped in the occult. They spent a small fortune on books which claimed to teach them how to master spiritual forces. They had all kinds of talismans and uh, different objects. They were always seeking the next bestseller with the latest mystery techniques. Into their world came the Apostle Paul. God chose to use his handkerchiefs and aprons to heal and deliver, holding his sweat and grime. You have to look at what they would first of all represent because God's going to give a one-two punch to the Ephesians. This is the first punch. The second punch is this failed exorcism. But, and, and so he, he ministers to them in stages. And so what do these sweatbands and aprons represent? Well, they represent the byproduct of Paul's laboring in order to teach the Word of God. The only reason that he produced sweatbands and aprons was he was working behind the scenes to support himself so that he could lecture and teach and preach the gospel every day in the hall of Tyrannus. And so those sweatbands and those aprons held that byproduct of his teaching of the Word of God. And so I'm suggesting that God used the handkerchiefs and aprons in a unique way in Ephesus to reach people caught up in the occult. They would eventually see that real spiritual power is a byproduct of teaching the Word of God. God was, in a sense, condescending to their superstitions for a time in order to break them of their superstitions. And He did it with humor. 
I don't know if you see the humor in this, but this is really funny. Here were these people spending bank on occult books that didn't result in any miracles or deliverance of any kind, and God says, how about an old gnarly sweatband? Take this. I mean, these guys were, like I said, a whole industry of silver statues of them. They were selling these on the shopping channels and stuff. Oh, the latest, look at this. Oh, look at the workmanship. And they were spending literally thousands and tens of thousands of dollars on these objects. And then God says, well, I can use a sweat band, the sweat of my spirit-filled servant can can be used. And I mean, it's a real contrast. I mean, whenever you're studying the Bible, look for comparisons and contrasts. And, and you know, uh, this is a big one. And, and it's, it's, it's so gross, it's funny. Did you wash the sweatband? No, seriously. I mean, were these, when you get these prayer cloths from these ministries, they're always, you know, real nice. And I mean, uh, I mean is, it a, is it a handkerchief that the evangelist blew his nose into? What's magic about it? Is it the snot or the rag itself, you know? I mean, you don't know. What is it that's going to heal the person? Maybe it has to have the sweat. Do you keep it moist? Keep it in a baggie so that the sweat... Is it the sweat? Do you wring the sweat? I mean, this, these are questions for the superstitious mind. And so God has a sense of humor. If this analysis is correct, it leads us away from the use of intermediate objects, not towards them. Paul simply taught the Word of God and did... Uh, and then God did miracles through him. He did not seek after ways to accomplish the miraculous. Believe me, Paul was not selling these cloths. He was not realizing a profit from them. They weren't going out with a return envelope. He had nothing to do with this. He just let God do his thing. If in certain cultures and certain circumstances, God chooses to use unusual methods to reach people, that's his prerogative. But when he does it, it is to break their superstitions, not establish them. Faith nails and paper prayer rugs and prayer cloths and traveling statues even would be a step into superstition for us. So people come along and they say, well, God used that in the New Testament, so we should use that today. No, he allowed it in the New Testament because he was reaching out to a people who didn't really understand the spiritual realm and who were caught up in superstition, and he breaks them of their superstition by the end of this episode, for us to get a prayer cloth or a, 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 any of these kind of intermediate objects is to embrace superstition that we don't believe in. And so that's what's happening here. The contemporary church should be resolute in refusing to borrow occult ideas and techniques and trying to merge them with biblical Christianity. We can and should limit ourselves to the limitless power that is inherent in God's Word. Now, the laughs continue in the next episode in our text. In verses 13 through 20, submit yourself to the indwelling presence of God's Spirit. With its fascination for all things occult, Ephesus was a haven for practitioners of all kinds. And here we meet a traveling troop of Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva. I'm sure they had banners and the whole thing. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Maybe you've seen recreations of exorcisms or movies that feature exorcisms. How many of you have seen The Exorcist? I have. 
Of course, it was before I was a Christian, so I'm okay, I'm covered. Uh, but exorcisms are always filled with mumbo jumbo and lots of uh, gimmicks. Uh, gallons of holy water are always needed for exorcisms. And you always know that the exorcism is going well because the holy water burns the, the person. You know, they're like shaking out this little holy water shaker and they're going around mumbo jumbo 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 like that in Latin. They're just saying mumbo jumbo in Latin is what they're doing. And then and the demon is and, and uh, then there's, there's crucifixes, gigantic crucifixes with Jesus on them and all kinds of rosary beads and any kind of whacked out, you know, thing that you can come up with. Now, quite honestly, I, the, the exorcist freaked me out uh, and it still freaks me out because, you know, the Christians don't do very good in the exorcist. Uh, eventually, the little girl... Uh, has the demon cast out of her, but not until the first priest is dead and the second priest jumps out a window. What's up with that? That, to me, is a failed exorcism. Or at least, you know, it could have gone better, I think, you know? Uh, but that's the thing. And, and we think, I don't know, we as a culture, we, you know, there, when we think of the supernatural or the spiritual, we think in terms of superstitions. And, and you know, it's like, this person might be demon-possessed. I need some garlic. I need to have some garlic or some holy water. I need something. I need something in between me and this person that has some kind of power. And, and we're given to that kind of thing. Well, in Ephesus, they were all over that. Uh, and so Paul had success over demons, and all he seemed to do was to pray for people. And he didn't even have a formula for doing it, but they knew he was using the name of Jesus, or he would, you know, as we would today probably pray in Jesus' name, or he would say the name of Jesus, or he'd say, hey, in the name of Jesus, or whatever. And so these guys, you know, they're kind of watching this from a distance, and they think, well, this is the, this is the new uh, holy water. It's the name of Jesus, and so they develop this formula to exercise demons, I exercise you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Oh, man, that and a little bit of holy water uh, and a few talismans laying around, you've got it made. And so they decided to try this out uh, in an especially difficult case. And so in verse 15, to their surprise, I'm sure, the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know. But who are you? Now, he probably would have used his demon voice. <laughs> you know, demons always, they always have to have a voice, you know, in the movies. I know, you know, and stuff. And they do all this crazy stuff, scratchy, screechy, because they're demons after all, you know. But uh, so, you know, these guys are doing this stuff, and I don't think a demon ever talked to them before, just between you and me. And so all of a sudden, this guy, well, Jesus I know, there's a name I know. And Paul, I know, who are you? This can only end badly. <laughs> the evil spirit knew Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the son of God. He knew that Jesus was God in human flesh. He knew that he had risen from the dead and had ascended into heaven and was the king of all things. And he knew he must submit to Jesus because the demons believe in Jesus, but they tremble in fear. And, and so he knew that. The evil spirit knew who Paul was. Paul had made it onto his radar. Paul was a saved man indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. The evil spirit knew that if he encountered Paul, 
he would have to submit to him as well because the Spirit of God dwelt within him. But these exorcists did not even know Jesus and were not indwelt by the Spirit of God. Now, I don't know if this, I'm just speculating right now, making this up as we go, so don't hold me to this. We'll edit this part out, but I'm just thinking, I don't know that a demon, can a demon tell if you're saved or not? I don't know, you know. Uh, But up until, let's say they don't really know if you're saved or not. So these guys, these are bad poker players. They expose their hand. They say, the Jesus whom Paul preaches, and he's like, whoa, you don't know him. I know him. I know Paul. I'm going to rip your heart out. And, and he does. He jumps on these guys, and, and I th- you know, he just takes advantage of the situation. Verse 16, the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. These guys got themselves a whooping. They got beat up, beat down, had their clothes torn off. Their beat down produced quite a fear in the populace. Hey, what's going on down there? The seven sons of Sceva, whoa, time out. The seven naked sons of Sceva, (laughs) all bruised and bloodied. What happened in there? We got beat up by a demon. Hence, an exorcise in futility. But anyway, uh, this became known to both all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, the exorcist had invoked the name of the Lord Jesus to no avail. Now, his name was magnified, and that means that people understood that the Jesus whom Paul preached was not a magic power. He was a living person. You couldn't use his name unless you knew him personally. His name was not a formula by which you could control supernatural forces. As I understand it, and and my understanding is limited, you know, I don't have a testimony that I dabbled in the occult or anything like that, but I think it's pretty obvious that a basic tenet of the occult is that you're trying to discover the formulas or the processes or the techniques by which to control powerful supernatural forces in the world. The intent of these episodes in Ephesus was to show that the truly powerful man or woman is the one controlled by God, not the one who can control these forces. Since we've been talking about movies this morning, think back to Star Wars, which is celebrating some anniversary this year. Was it the 30th year or something like that? I don't know. I I try and be up to date on things. But anyway, you remember Star Wars. And Luke, you know, Luke Skywalker, he didn't know that the force was with him. He didn't know that he was powerful in the force, and so he zooms down into the Death Star, and he's, you know, he's trying to line up his sights, but Darth Vader is, like, giving off force vibes, and, and he can't quite get it. And so Obi-Wan Kenobi goes, Luke, use the force. And, and he's like, wow, who's talking, you know? And finally, he kicks away his sights, and he just kind of goes into that zen moment. You know, and man, that thing goes right, the force just shoots right through him and, uh, you know, goes and the Death Star gets obliterated and he's like getting tuned into the fact that there's something out there, something out there. And so you progress until you get to the third movie and he's now fully a Jedi Knight. I mean, he is a master of the force. He tells, talks to people and they change their mind. You know, he's trying to get to see Jabba the Hutt. And, and they're trying, and he goes, you know, does a Jedi mind trick, and finally, my favorite scene in all the Star Wars trilogy, 
Luke Skywalker with Jabba the Hutt. And Jabba goes, oh, oh, oh. Your Jedi mind tricks won't work on me, young Skywalker. Oh, oh, oh. And then he gets thrown into prison and he has to fight off that big... And I'm thinking, what kind of a Jedi are you? You know, if you can't overcome a snail or a slug or whatever Jabba is. Although Jabba, one of the great characters in modern American movies. I mean, I think he should have a sequel. Uh, just the Jabba sequel or something, you know. But anyway... So, the idea, but see, the, you know, the idea, the reason that works, the reason Star Wars works is because we all have an idea that there is a supernatural realm to be tapped into and controlled. And that's the whole point of the Star Wars trilogy. Luke has to learn to control the force. There's, the force is just out there. It's good. It's evil. No, it's just out there. You have to learn to control it for good. And he eventually brings his dad back. Oh, man. Thanks, Darth. And, uh, you know, it's all this fascinating stuff. And here's what God is showing us in Ephesus. It's not you don't control anything. You come under the control of the Holy Spirit. That is the powerful man. That is the man whose sweatbands can heal people if God so chooses. But he doesn't need those. And so by the time you get to this episode... He has broken the back of all occult superstition in Ephesus. Verse 18, many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Note the phrase, many who had believed first. They were Christians, but they had continued in certain deeds. What kind of deeds? Well, it could refer to just sin in general, but most likely it points to what is described in verse 19. Many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Magic is a catch-all term that includes rituals and incantations, all sorts of occult activity involving magic objects and things like that. We're not talking about Chris Angel, uh, you know, drowning himself on the streets of New York or something like that. This isn't sleight of hand. This is, this is a definite occult activity. After getting saved, they kept their interest in the occult. They held on to their books. They probably bought new books. Up to this point, even as Christians, they saw no pressing need to sever their ties with the occult. You know, sometimes a new believer will hang on to old habits that are inconsistent with biblical values. You lead somebody to Christ, and um, maybe you'll run into them, and you'll Oh, man, what's that I smell? That smells a lot like marijuana. Yeah. Want some? Well, no, wait a minute. No, I mean, you're a Christian. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess I need to give that up. And then they give it up, you know? I mean, and so, I mean, some of you are laughing, but some of you, you held on to some things. You didn't really know that they were bad. You just, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian now. I shouldn't be doing that. Other times, new believer gets rid of all those kinds of things. I remember when Pam and I first got saved, we poured hundreds of dollars of alcohol down the drain. And then we had all these bottles left over and I was embarrassed. I didn't know what to do with the bottle. So in the middle of the night, we snuck to the dump, you know, so that nobody would see. We didn't want everybody to think, hey, we got saved and went on a bender, you know. I mean, you know, with a bag full of uh, alcohol, we flushed weed down the toilet, got rid of a bunch of albums, uh, which we could have sold for a fortune today on eBay. But, but that's the idea. See, these people... They didn't want to make a fortune off of these things. 50,000 pieces of silver, that's a lot of money. 
Uh, to put it in perspective, in their culture, you could buy 1,700 slaves for 50,000 pieces of silver. But these things were inherently evil, so why allow others to be influenced by them? If you have something in your life, God bless you, if you have something in your life that uh, needs to be gotten rid of and it's inherently evil, I'm here to tell you, don't sell it. Just burn it, get rid of it, destroy it, uh, and do so joyfully. And so in verse 20, the word of the Lord grew and mightily prevailed. Prevailed is a word that indicates a contest or a struggle, and this verifies everything we're talking about this morning. The word of the Lord had defeated the occult at Ephesus after a struggle against it. God had come against the superstitious people and the occult practices with a one-two punch. First, I'm going to allow intermediate objects to have healing power, but they're going to be ridiculous intermediate objects that are the byproduct of my spirit-filled man who is laboring to teach the Word of God so that the people can begin to understand that the power is in the Word. It's in that daily study of the Word, that daily reception of the Word in the hall of Tyrannus, which is moving out through all of Asia Minor. You want to talk about a supernatural move, it's that all of Asia Minor is being evangelized and lives are being changed. And so that's the first punch. And then while they're reeling from that, he comes in and he says, I'm going to have these seven sons of Sceva try out their new formula. These guys are going to get ripped up. And people are going to see that it's not a control of spirits, but it's spirit-controlled man. And the Christians, they say, wow, we have got to get, we've got to get this stuff out of our lives. We're dabbling in the wrong place. Let's burn our books. Let's get rid of our talismans and our trinkets and our magic potions. No more holy water. Uh, you know, whatever it is, we're done with that. Let's just be like Paul and labor in the Word of God. Labor daily and intensively and see what God does. Spiritual power comes from submitting yourself to the indwelling presence of God. There is no outside source. There's no magic formula for prayer or practice. Again, the contemporary church must take heed. There are an awful lot of groups claiming they have uncovered or discovered some secret to healing or to delivering people from demons. You can go to probably... Well, I was going to say any Christian bookstore, but you wouldn't find it in ours. But you can go to a lot of Christian bookstores or, and, uh, and find books that will teach you certain techniques of how to pray for people so that they will be healed or how exactly to come against demons. I mean, the, the famous thing that people always say about demon and, and exorcism is that you have to know the demon's name. Uh, and they, ta- they try and take this from certain passages in Scripture, notably where Jesus had an encounter there, and he said, well, who are you? And they said, well, we are legion, for we are many. And so people said, there it is. As soon as you get the demon's name, you can control him and manipulate him. Demons lie. They're liars. The devil is the greatest liar of all time. He was a liar from the beginning, uh, you know, of his fall. And so I'm to trust a demon when he tells me his name is Abaddon, Oh, I'm a bet. Oh, there it is. I've got it now. I'm going to control you. You know, I mean, it's crazy the things that we, and, and Christians, you know, we're always wanting to bring these techniques into the church. We can't call them by their occult name, so we call them by some new Christianized name. We call it the healing of memories, or we call it contemplative prayer. 
Uh, and this is a big movement in the church today. It's part of what's called the emerging church or the emergent church, where certain Christian leaders are opening themselves up to a lot of other supernatural and spiritual phenomena. They're linking up with others who are clearly not Christians, but who have dabbled in spiritual phenomena. Uh, they're going on prayer walks and doing all this kind of mumbo-jumbo, hocus-pocus type stuff. And people do it and they think, wow, I feel so spiritual. You, 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 you don't understand, I thought it was weird too, but then when I did it, I could really feel and sense this stuff going on. Uh, it's like I had the sweat rag of Paul, they might as well say. See, God, is, God didn't do this to lead you into these things. He did this to lead you out of them, to set you free from superstition and that realm. And so what should we do? We should proceed within the limits set by the limitless power of the Word of God. And we must be submitted to the direction and decisions of the indwelling Spirit of God. That is spiritual power. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these things. We've had some fun with them, Lord, but they're deadly serious in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. And so I pray, Lord, that uh, we would put them in perspective, not be confused. If anyone here, Lord, is dabbling in an occult practice, I, I pray that they would bring it to you and uh, burn it either philosophically or, or actually. And we pray, Lord, that we would just go forward in the power and grace of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand together. Uh, as always, I'd like to exhort you and encourage you to uh, introduce yourself to somebody that you don't know. You don't have to become best friends, but it's just be friendly. Uh, cafe is open as, as usual. If you haven't been in the bookstore, go over there and encourage the bookstore staff and, and say hi. And uh, You don't have to buy anything, you know, but just go over there and, and just get blessed. We're meeting Wednesday morning. At uh, 6.30, the men get together for a time of devotion. We're going through Romans chapter 7 right now. Uh, we're done by 7.15. And then we're here Wednesday night at 7 until 8.15 with our Ignite service, which is just a, an, a really neat time of ministry. If the Lord hasn't come back for us by the end of the week, uh, first day of the week, it'll be Sunday and we'll get together. It'll be our Christmas service. It'll be December 23rd. We'll have two services like we do, normal Sunday, 8.15 and 10.15, but we'll be doing some special things for Christmas. Uh, and then Monday, Christmas Eve, 4 p.m. and 6 p.m., our lessons, carols, choruses, candlelight service. This is the greatest time of the year and the best service of the year to bring family and friends. Uh, and so uh, if you're together with family, uh, hey, strong arm them. They've said no enough, haven't they? Haven't they said no enough? You've invited them to church and they keep saying no. And just say, hey, look, you know, why, you, you're going to come to church with me. You're not eating this year. You know, I mean, just a little bit, you know, that's fine. They'll love it. It'll be fantastic. We read, uh, you know, talk about Jesus coming into the world and his coming again. Short message at the end where it's an hour, uh, you know, a, a, a just centered and focused on what this season really is all about. And so come on out, join us if you can. If you're traveling, if you're going to be with family, especially unsafe family, we'll be praying for you. Uh, that you would have a blessed and glorious Christmas, that as we saw in our text today, the name of Jesus would be magnified through you, uh, in you, and in that place where you are. May God bless you and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen.